So you walk into the kitchen and you see your friend, I don't know, let's call her Gwyneth, shotgunning her 10th probiotic drink. It's because of the good bacteria, she says after you give her an incredulous look. Lactobacillus is a good bacteria, right? I heard it on a podcast. You mentioned that as with everything, there can be too much of a good thing, and the same thing goes for good bacteria. Stick around for that conversation on this episode of Short Stories of Bacteria. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Short Stories of Bacteria. I am your host, Dr. K. If this is your first time tuning into the podcast, be sure to hit that follow button over there on Spotify and be sure to share as well. Um, also, be sure to follow us on Instagram at Science with Dr. K. That is Science with Dr. Underscore K. Um, there should be a link in the show notes. If there is not, I am sorry. I will remember next week. Um, but anyway, onto the show. Uh, poor Gwyneth over here is pounding probiotic drink after probiotic drink, and is surprised to hear that there is a law of diminishing returns when it comes to consuming so-called good bacteria. And the reason why is that it stems from this, uh, this simple concept about how we classify the goodness and badness of bacteria, right? It turns out it's really, really difficult to call bacterial species good or bad. A lot of it depends on the context. Now, there are some bacteria that we could generally classify as bad bacteria. Those are the ones that just doesn't matter what we do. You just simply can't get along with them. They're going to try and kill us regardless of how we interact with them. Um, those bacterial pathog- pathogens excuse me, will include species like mycobacterium tuberculosis that causes tuberculosis, uh, mycobacterium leprae that causes leprosy, uh, Yersinia pestis that causes the black death of lore. Um, these are ones that we would generally call these just bad bacteria, right? That being said, these pathogenic species, these bad bacteria, are actually very low in number and are dwarfed percentage-wise by the amount of bacteria that are helpful or that are just purely, uh, just purely apathetic to us. Now, our own microbiomes tend to be largely composed of those bacteria, the ones that are either helpful or apathetic. And our whole goal in our microbiome is to be able to exist in a, in a harmonious state where those bacteria help us to do the things that we want to do, right? That's the point of a healthy microbiome. And we've talked at length on this podcast and of examples of ways that a healthy microbiome can be used to help us out, right? Now, these bacteria, the ones that help us out in our own microbiome, they obviously don't do so purely out of the generosity of their own hearts. They do so because they are benefiting from us. Right? We provide a whole bunch of things for bacteria. We provide food, we provide shelter, we provide warmth, we provide love and comfort and all such manner of things that a growing bacterial colony is going to need. This relationship of helping them out and then helping us out, also known as a symbiotic relationship, benefits both of us and our bacterial species. And it's a naturally occurring phenomenon that we see all throughout nature, especially, especially when it comes to bacterial life. Now, these symbiotic bacteria are typically what we describe when we want to talk about good bacteria, since they're helping us to do the things that we want to do. But now, Dr. K, you shout, now it sounds that you are flip-flopping. You told me that Gwyneth might be wrong in shotgunning her 10 probiotic drinks. All you've told me now is that our microbiome is made up of good bacteria. Is there a catch when it comes to good bacteria? And the catch comes when you realize that the goodness or badness of a bacterial species depends largely 
on the context of the bacteria. Okay, let's look at that probiotic, probiotic excuse me, example. Most, most normal probiotics have either bifidobacteria or lactobacillus, both of which are considered good bacteria. I'll put that good in quotes. But what happens is if you keep taking more and more probiotics, some changes start to happen. The first change that's occurring at the microbiome level, just from a diversity perspective, is you're decreasing the diversity of the microbiome. This is because you are essentially just re-inoculating yourself over and over with the same type of bacteria over and over again. If you were here last week, you'll recall that microbiome diversity is really important, so it could be a problem if you just have only two species of <laughs> two species of bacteria in your gut. Uh, in addition, many common bacteria in probiotics can stimulate histamine release, which can result in, some, in certain types of allergic reactions. So if you take these on a large scale, it could present an issue that way. Um, additionally, if you take too many probiotics and your gut is absolutely full of bacteria, then on a large scale, they can emit a lot of gas while feeding, and that can cause things like intestinal distress and bloating. The worst thing of all would be if you have a really weak immune system and you dump a whole bunch of bacteria into your gut, too many bacteria could lead to an overreaction uh, coming from the immune response. So all these are bad potential side effects, but these are all reactions that can occur from taking too much of a good bacteria, okay? Now, all of this is just to point out one really fundamental thing, that bacteria very rarely are just good or bad species. A lot of it depends on the surrounding environmental factors. Now, in the case of probiotics, it's actually really, really hard to overdose on a probiotic in a way that's fatal. But even in the case of our good bacteria, they're not always going to act in a good way, just regardless of what you do. It is possible that even the most good bacteria of all can just break bad given the right circumstances. I'm going to say that again. Let me. It's a very fundamental principle. Even the most helpful bacteria of all can become a bad bacteria given the right circumstances. Now, while the microbiome and probiotics are very, very interesting, since probiotics are nicely tuned to our bodies, it's really hard to see that principle in action. Um, so what we want to talk about next is, are there any examples in nature that demonstrate a bacteria that is really, really good one second and then really, really bad the next second? And this is where we're going to get into a paper that I wanted to share with you today. Um, but instead of humans, we are sidestepping from our own microbiome to the microbiome of algae and their bacteria, right? Okay, so this paper came out recently from the Weissman Institute of Science in Israel, and it was looking at interactions between a species of algae called E. huxleyi and a type of bacteria called Roseobacter sulfidobacter. I'm going to shorten that to Roseobacter. So Roseobacter and E. huxleyi. Uh, e. huxleyi, the algal species, is a form of plankton. So you are familiar with plankton, the microscopic creatures that live under the sea. Um, in addition to this, E. Slahi has also been implicated in a lot of, um, as one of the main culprits when it comes to formation of an algal bloom. So, an algal blooms, those cause pretty widespread death of aquatic habitats. So, they're a bit of a pain. Um, but, in any event, if you take a look, uh, a closer look, excuse me, at these two, you'll find that Roseobacteria and Huxleyi tend to have a really solid relationship at first blush, right? And this happens because of an inherent limitation on the part of Huxleyi. See, um, Huxleyi, the algae, for all its power and ability to make algal blooms, is unable to make B vitamins, which it needs in order to survive. 
right? So that means that in order to get around this, in order to survive, E. Huxley has to get B vitamins from the environment. And this is where Roseobacter comes in because Roseobacter, as it turns out, has this natural ability to make B vitamins that ideally places it in a position to help Huxley out, right? So as a result, whenever it sees a little Roseobacter trundling along, Huxley he will come came, comes up with this really tricky way of pulling Roseobacter into its environment so it can gain access to the B vitamins that the Roseobacter makes, right? And it does so by making a different molecule called benzoate. Now, benzoate, it's a molecule that most bacteria can't do much with, uh, but it turns out that Roseobacter is unique in its ability to use it as a way to continue growing and thriving, right? So what that means is that if it hangs out with the Huxley algae, Roseobacter has access to an additional resource that no other bacteria can have. So that allows it to outcompete any of the other bacterial species that are floating around in, in that space, right? So all this to say that Roseobacter and Huxley have a really cool symbiotic relationship that's simultaneously useful for both of the species, where Huxley gives the Roseobacter some benzoate and the Roseobacter gives Huxley some B vitamins. The researchers who are looking at this called this first interaction the first handshake. I'll put that in quotes. And then based off of this first handshake, the bacteria could keep on growing, the algae can keep on growing, and together they just lived happily ever after. It's very similar, in fact, to our own microbiome in that both the bacteria and the eukaryotic cell were benefiting from that interaction. You could go so far as to call Roseobacter a good bacteria from the perspective of the Huxley algae. But now here's where it starts to get a little crazy. Um, just as changing the status quo of our microbiome can change how it interacts with our body, say if we have a weak immune system or if there's too much bifido in our gut, changing the status quo between the Roseobacter and the algae also changes how they interact. The difference being that whereas our changes in interactions are subtle, like you get a tummy ache or something, this change is very dramatic and deadly for the algae. So what happens? How does this break down? Um, what, what happens is as E. Huxley ages, it starts to release this chemical called DMSP. It's a chemical that has sulfur in it, and it signifies that the algae species is getting a little older and a little weaker. So they're not to the point where they're going to like drop down and die or anything like that. But you know, they're not they're not as young as they once were, and they don't have quite as much spring in their step. Now, while DMSP is usually used as a symbiotic and mutualistic uh, molecule. It has a very different impact on the Roseobacter. Once Roseobacter senses the presence of the DMSP coming from the algae, it triggers this really rapid and dramatic um, remodeling in the genetics of the bacteria. This remodeling triggers the expression of a number of different uh, genes in Roseobacter, two genetic clusters of note, one of pathogenesis and one of flagellar movement. So what this ultimately means is that as soon as the bacteria senses DMSP coming out of the algae, it starts turning down the happy B vitamin producing genes and starts revving up genes that allow it to kill things quickly and run away really, really fast. Now, E. Huxley, for its part, is not particularly pleased about this because it's relying on the B vitamins and maybe it can see the Roseobacter starting to draw out its fork and knife, so to speak. Um, so what it does is it tries to bribe the bacteria with a little bit more of that benzoate molecule that we mentioned earlier. And that works a little bit, but only for a little bit. Eventually, the DMSP aroma is just too much for the Roseobacter. And so the Roseobacter just ends up shredding the algae and then running off to the next algae. Now, this back and forth from sedate 
loving friend to a bacterial backstabber is a little unsettling, but it's a really cool in illustration of how bacteria very rarely are just good or bad. They will change what they do and how they do it depending on their environment. And the changes that they put in place can sometimes impact our interactions with bacteria, or at least the interactions between algae and bacteria. So let's take this from the top. Uh, bacteria can either be pathogenic, generally, can be either pathogenic, beneficial, or apathetic to us. And the bacteria in our microbiome tend to be either beneficial or apathetic. Number two, the way in which we respond to bacteria and how bacteria respond to us varies largely with the environment. And sometimes beneficial bacteria can be modified into negative bacteria. Number three, an example of this modification is the relationship between Roseobacter sulfetobacter and E. Huxleyhi, where Roseobacter goes from a symbiotic friend to a homicidal maniac, depending on the surrounding environment. Overall, it's a really, really good reminder of how we should look at the bacterial species with which we interact on a daily basis. And it's a really good reminder just how important environment is to those interactions. But that being said, that is all I have for you today. Thank you so much for hanging out with me on this Tuesday or whichever day you listen to this episode. I hope you have a wonderful and blessed day. And I'm looking forward to talking with you on next week's episode of Short Stories of Bacteria. Dr. K, signing off.